Hey, this is Nate with Purity for Life. As we begin to look into the origins of Babylon, there's one question that needs to be answered first. If Genesis chapters 6 through 8 tell us the story of a family that survived the great flood because they were so devoted to God, why do Genesis 10 and 11 tell us the story of a great rebellion against God's authority? How could mankind have fallen so far so fast? Thanks for joining us for episode 3 in our new series, Babylon, the Seat of Satan's Power. In this episode, Steve Gallagher joins us to look at where the Tower of Babel rebellion ultimately began, in the heart of Noah's own son. After witnessing such a solemn display of God's holy wrath against sin, one would assume that the human race would be extremely fearful of invoking his judgment again. But alas, such is the power of evil in the hearts of men that it can lie dormant for years and suddenly come to life when the circumstances call it forth. This episode is all about why a young man who grew up in a very godly home could become the grandfather of the first Antichrist. And we'll also connect this story to each one of us. That's what's coming up on Purity for Life. Genesis 6 through 8 tells the story of a family that survived the great flood because God deemed them worthy to be saved. Genesis 10 and 11 tell the story of a great insurrection against God's authority. How did mankind fall so quickly and so profoundly in such a relatively short amount of time? After witnessing such a solemn display of God's holy wrath against sin, one would assume that the human race would be extremely fearful of invoking his judgment again. But alas, such is the power of evil in the hearts of men that it can lie dormant for years and suddenly come to life when the circumstances call it forth. And a simple incident found in Genesis 9 brought together just such a set of circumstances. Before we get into this story, I just want to remind you that Noah's sons were raised in the hellish world described in the previous episode. Noah had already begun building the ark when Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born. They grew up watching their father hard at work, tilling the soil, maintaining the livestock, working on this enormous ship, and pouring his heart out to all who came to mock him for his efforts. Every ploy Satan attempted to discourage the old man failed. For at least a hundred years, he faithfully continued his toil. Before long, his sons came of age and their efforts proved to be an enormous help in accomplishing the seemingly impossible task God called him to complete. It should also be remembered that Satan was not idle during this time. He and his fallen spirits thrived during the days of Noah, and with all his heart he desired to reestablish his cruel grip on the hearts of men. And so he patiently waited and watched 
for any sign of spiritual weakness in one of the three young sons of Noah. It quickly became clear that Shem had a heart for God like that of his father. He could not easily be reached. Japheth, the youngest of the three, was a decent man even if he didn't have his older brother's zeal. It was Ham who showed the most promise. He was careless and carefree, lacking the spiritual sobriety of his father and brothers. Satan quickly surmised that he was the weak link in the family. He was the one who could be used to accomplish his evil purposes. It was a new world the primordial family discovered as it emerged from the ark. They immediately set to work establishing the farm life they had left behind. Trees, bushes, grass, and vegetable plants began to sprout, and then Noah planted a vineyard, and Noah developed a taste for wine. One night, Noah let himself go. One glass of wine turned into another and yet another. While Shem and Japheth helplessly looked on, their pious father got sloppily, uproariously drunk. Ham and his sons were watching as well. They weren't horror-stricken over their father's outrageous behavior that night. In fact, watching the old patriarch carry on like this gave them a certain degree of smug satisfaction. Eventually, the old man stumbled into his tent and everyone called it a night. Well, as we all know, bad things happen when people get drunk. Moral restraints and inhibitions tend to fly right out the window. A man's sense of dignity and decency also go by the wayside. Eventually, Noah ended up in his tent naked. In fact, we're told that he uncovered himself. This term is used throughout the Torah to describe indecent behavior, such as committing incest with one's relatives. We know this incident occurred some years after the family emerged from the ark because by now grandkids had been born and were at least in their teen years. Perhaps Noah did something with one of them in the midst of his drunken condition. The Bible gives no detail as to what actually happened, but we know that at the very least, he disgraced himself in the sight of his family. Whatever the case, the next morning, Ham slipped into his father's tent no doubt inspired by Satan, only to discover his father in his nakedness. Ham's response to his father's failing speaks volumes about the kind of man he had become. Rather than covering his father's shame in love, he spitefully mocked Noah for his momentary lapse in judgment. This he did despite the fact that his father had faithfully served Yahweh for hundreds of years in the midst of horrific pressure to conform to the lawless culture of the day. Whatever his spiritual condition might have been prior to the flood, one thing was certain now. Ham was what the Bible calls a fool. He ridiculed godly authority. He mocked at sin. He had no fear of its consequences. So it is clear that by the time this incident occurred, Ham was in a bad way spiritually. When he witnessed his father's indulgent behavior and then walked into that tent to see his father's nakedness, he was not the same man whose life God had spared in the flood. Not content with enjoying a perverse sense of pleasure in his father's shame, 
The first thing Ham wanted to do was to gloat over his father's condition to others. He immediately went to his brothers, hoping to pull them into his own mocking spirit. Rather than joining in their brother's ridicule, in reverential modesty, Shem and Japheth covered their father with averted eyes. The last thing a loving person wants to do is to see a loved one in their naked shame. As Noah woke up and realized what Ham had done, he pronounced a curse, not on him, but on his son Canaan. Whatever the reason Noah cursed his grandson rather than his son, the fact that Noah went on to bless Shem and Japheth and not Ham makes it clear that Ham and all of his descendants also came under that curse with Canaan. There is much that remains uncertain, but what is clear is that this family was never the same after this incident. According to an ancient extra-biblical writing called the Book of Jubilees, Ham and his sons became so incensed with Noah over the curse that they broke away from the family unit and went their own way. The result of the incident was a family feud that altered the course of history. Out of the loins of Ham would come a son named Cush, and Cush would father a son named Nimrod. And it was this boy who would be destined to become the world's first antichrist as he led a historical insurrection against God's authority. What he accomplished during his life would establish a pattern which would repeat itself many times over the following centuries, a pattern of wicked insubordination to God's rule of law. So, Pastor Ed, in the first segment, Pastor Steve was talking about how Noah's son, Ham, um, there were circumstances that came forth in his life that brought out some evil tendencies that were already there in his heart. And that's what really caught my attention. He said this, Such is the power of evil in the hearts of men that it can lie dormant for years and suddenly come to life when the circumstances call it forth. Mm -hmm. And it's that statement that actually makes me wonder, okay, so what does it really mean to have victory over sexual sin? Because what he's basically saying is that there can be all of this stuff happening under the surface, and then a set of circumstances bring out what's been going on all along. So we can think, I'm living in victory. I'm doing really well. But what's actually happening is that the circumstances aren't conducive for that sin. And we don't want that. We want real, genuine victory in our lives where it's not just the circumstances around us that are keeping us in like an artificial state of purity. So I want to talk about maybe some situations where where we could key in on like a certain type of person and speak to them so they can see what it means to live in victory. The first one I thought of was a like a young person growing up in a pretty conservative home. So their parents are really creating a protective barrier around them. So they're not going to have access to like promiscuity or pornography or sensual imagery on the television. But if they're indulging in fantasy or maybe even self-gratification, what's the danger here for that person? 
Yeah, that's good, Nate. And, you know, obviously the danger from my perspective is the lies that he's believing. He believes essentially that he's not that bad, Mm. that others are doing much worse. He's aware of some of the things that others are doing, and and he believes that he's fine because he's not doing what they're doing. But he's still feeding his flesh, uh, indulging in some forms of sexual sin, even in this analogy or or in this uh, scenario that you've created. And he's still walking in the wrong direction even if his steps are kind of very slow and measured in that direction, he's still headed in the wrong direction. He probably even likely believes that masturbation isn't a sin, so that would be another lie that he's believing because God is not okay with masturbation as as a lot of people want to believe. And every sin is a sin that we need to repent of fully and let only the blood of Jesus cover it. And he can't escape the need to repent for his sin. Even if he doesn't feel it is sin, it still is. And if he's not broken and repentant over these kinds of indulgences, eventually they're going to lead him into that place where it wants more and more. He needs Mm. to go further. He needs to go deeper. Uh, He's going to want something more sensuous, more graphic, more real even perhaps to feed that the sexual sin in his life, the habits that he's formed. And, you know, that old saying is so true that uh, lust will take you further than you intended to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay, and it will cost you more than you intended to pay. And, you know, we treat that, unfortunately, like it's a tired old cliche because it's been, you know, around for years and talked about and used in many contexts. So the words no longer have the kind of alarm for us that they should. Like Mm. lust is a dangerous thing that takes us further and keeps us longer and costs us more uh, than we reckon for. And he's going to have to deal with that uh, at some point and really take hold of the truth about the lust in his heart. You know, what's going to happen when he leaves this nice, comfortable home environment that he's been in, where, like you pointed out, it's just a lack of opportunity primarily that's been keeping him. And believe me, we've counseled a lot of young men in both the Overcomers at Home program and the residential program that come out of those kinds of settings. And then they went off to Bible college or they got into a serious dating relationship and suddenly all this lust that had lain kind of in their heart unchecked for years suddenly starts to emerge and show up in various ways yeah. and lead to those kind of problems. Mm. Yeah, I was while you were talking I was thinking about how many times I've heard one of our in our graduation speech at the residential program like and then I went off to college or and then I went into the army or mm-hmm. whatever and then all of a sudden like all the barriers that they thought they had in their life the control they thought they had is all gone. It's evaporates. Yeah, and yeah. then 20 years later, whatever, they're kind of coming to their senses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's horrible. Right. Um, so, yeah, the second scenario that I thought about was where a young man or maybe a young woman, and I guess they could probably be any age, where they've already really indulged in sexual sin, and so then they realize, okay, I don't want to live like this, and so they put a bunch of safeguards in place, like internet filters and accountability. Um, I don't know, maybe they let somebody track their location on their phone. Mm-hmm. And so they are making gains in mm-hmm. terms of the outward sin. They're not looking at pornography. They're not going to strip clubs. But Again, what Pastor Steve said, maybe this is just, again, waiting for a 
new set of circumstances to bring out the thing that's lying dormant for years. What are warning signs that these people could look for that would say, whoa, I'm not actually dealing with my heart, and this is going to come back around at some point? Yeah. I think there are probably uh, a number of diagnostic questions I I might consider them that that I would want to ask that person if I'm counseling them or they can ask themselves even, you know, how am I doing? Uh, In other words, how effective are these safeguards? (laughs) Are they really working for me? Am I testing all of those boundaries, you know, trying to get past or through the safeguards or or are they kind of in the background and I know they're there, but my Google searches and things like that aren't really testing those boundaries anyway. And if the if the person ends up at, you know, a hotel room or a relative's house where some of those same safeguards don't necessarily exist, what happens there? Are they being kept? Do they have intense struggles or do they give over in some way? So some of that will tell them kind of really where their heart's at. Mm. Do they have victory over self-gratification? You know, because I think that's really a good barometer, generally speaking, of where someone's really at in terms mm. of victory. It's not foolproof, but it'll tell you a lot, especially if they are giving over to some degree, mm-hmm. that their heart really isn't where they would like it to be. It needs to be. And, you know, on the other side of things, maybe, you know, some of the questions would be, have they replaced sexual sin with some other unhealthy behavior? You know, some uh, some going after comfort foods or overindulging in uh, some hobby that they really enjoy, mm. but it's just taken to the extremes. So it's almost an idol for them or uh, watching television or movies and and do they gravitate toward a particular kind of movie that might help stir or stimulate some of that sensuality or fleshliness in them. In biblical counseling, we speak of uh, the need to pursue, you know, a putting off of mm-hmm. our sinful behaviors, a need to renew our mind and bring it into agreement and alignment with the Word of God, and a putting on of godly behaviors that mm. take the place of those sinful behaviors. So when I hear you talk about someone who's, you know, the way you described this at the outset, it sounds like he's done a good job or she has done a good job of all the putting off type stuff. Mm-hmm. But where are they at in terms terms of the actual renewing of the mind or the putting on Mm. process, because, you know, that has to be part of it. Is is there any evidence uh, that the Word of God is actually changing the way they think about sexual sin? in general. It has to be something more than just God says I can't do it mm-hmm. <laughs> because that won't keep any of us. You know, in fact that only seems to stir us and make us want it more. Right. <laughs> right? And so uh, that's never going to be enough given the way that we're wired. We have to better understand why God sets the standards and boundaries that he does. And we have to ultimately come into really uh, an agreement in our mind, our heart that sexual purity is better than sexual immorality. So mm. so I would look for some kind of evidence of that in, in terms mm. of dealing with where are they at in their heart. And there's that putting on piece, which, uh, you know, I asked, questions or, or look at areas like what does this person do with their idle time? You know, mm. Does any of it go to the Lord? Is there is there a pull, a uh, tug to do something, you know, to invest in their relationship with the Lord at all? Uh, what does he or she seek out for pleasure? How much of the world's sensuality and carnal pleasure is this person really exposing themselves to? What efforts are there in really investing in a relationship with the Lord? You know, that sort of thing. How much time, effort goes into studying the Bible? 
one of the keys to me in this area would be like, what is their prayer life like, really? How long is it? Is it consistent, you know, every day spending some time in dedicated prayer? And do their personal issues like take up all that time or are they really, you know, spending the majority of it interceding for others, you know, because those sorts of things tell us a lot about where a person's heart is at. Mm. And that's what I think to me, if I'm trying to measure that or get a sense of whether I'm in danger, in trouble, or whether I'm doing okay, the real question that I had asked myself is, is the pull towards sexual sin over time in general increasing or decreasing? And that should tell me whether I'm really dealing with the heart issues or mm. not. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's really good. One thing that I know about humans, uh, because I am one, <laughs> is uh, that we can have all kinds of different motivations for why we do what we do. And so it's not always enough to look at the behavior, but we ask ourselves, why am I motivated to do this? And um, one powerful motivation inside of us is to fit in mm. with the people who are around us. So whatever culture we find ourselves in at that moment, it's like we want to adapt. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is that way, but a lot of us are very, mm -hmm. very much motivated to fit in. And so I was thinking about the scenario that Pastor Steve was referencing where Ham grows up in Noah's family, in a godly family, but surrounding that family is this very godless culture. And so I was wondering if Ham would have felt that tension growing up, you know, heavily influenced to live a godly life by Noah and his brothers, but also feeling the pressure of this godless culture around him. And maybe there was this like inner conflict that was mm -hmm. festering over a period of years, and then it really broke out into an open decision to be ungodly when his father got drunk. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to people who are feeling that same conflict. Sure. Uh, that conflict that you're describing, I think, is very real and probably pretty common. You know, Noah's son, Ham, as you mentioned, had to deal with it, uh, it seemed. And I think of the verse in Second uh, Timothy 4, where Paul is urging Timothy to come to him. He says, come quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the, the heart of the conflict. Like, our love for God gets overrun by our love for the world and the things of the world. And it always will be overrun if we don't deal with this inner conflict that we're experiencing openly and honestly, mm -hmm. for one thing. Mm -hmm. We need to stop fooling ourselves, you know, just be honest with ourselves about our affection for the world and not live in some kind of denial about that. You know, I really have a desire to indulge in some of the unrestrained freedoms and, and pleasures and mm. the promiscuity of the world. And, and a lot of times when that desire is in us, there's also some toying with it going on over here on the side. You know, there are little indulgences that in and of themselves we could explain away or don't necessarily take us into the deep end of the pool, so to speak, but mm -hmm. but they are having an impact. And, um, and I think hand in hand when we're living like that, where we have this desire, but it's sort of restrained and held in check just by a cultural sort of thing or whatever – 
inside us, kind of silently, maybe inwardly, we're developing a bit of a bitterness against God because we're kind of accusing him of withholding all that pleasure from us, all Mm -hmm. that stuff that we think we really want. And that's where we're going to end up, of course, in big trouble because, you know, just like Scripture says, we cannot have two masters. You know, either we will hate the one and love the other or we'll uh, be loyal to the one and despise the Mm -hmm. other. You know, we're going to have to choose between loving God and loving the world or eventually we'll do exactly what Demas did to Paul. Uh, We'll do that to the Lord ourselves and just forsake him and go after the world if we don't resolve that conflict. So we really have to take to heart, you know, in 1 John where he says, do not love the world or the things of the world, you know. And I think part of our problem, Nate, is that just the world, like the here and the now seems so real while the eternal stuff seems so vague and Mm -hmm. distant, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe even irrelevant for us at times. But right on the heels of that passage in 1 John where he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he also says the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to be diligent about directing our minds to the things that are unseen, uh, yet they're eternal, and remind ourselves of how fleeting the things of this world really are, especially those lustful areas. Mm-hmm. You know, they are so fleeting and passing away. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't mind, I can even share a bit of, of a word of testimony here because, you know, I kind of remember being in that place in my life, okay? I I grew up uh, with a, an attraction, same-sex attraction issue, but it was secret, just internal, you know, very well-kept secret, uh, mm. harbored those desires for many years. And then somewhere along the line in my early 30s, mid-30s, I actually fell into open sexual sin, got into a same-sex relationship, and that got exposed, and and I repented, ended up coming to Pure Life as part of that, of course. But I still had to deal with this inner conflict at that place in my life because I can remember for some period of time at least having this struggle, this notion in the back of my mind that I missed out on something, that there was more that I didn't mm. get to experience. I didn't go as far as others. I didn't have, you know, this whole fling into same-sex right. culture and things like that. And, you know, in the back of my mind, there was this nagging thought that it, maybe it would have been better with somebody else if mm. I just try another person. You know, I felt like I didn't really get to fulfill any of my hidden desires or fantasies, uh, things like that, before the whole thing crashed down and came to an end. So that internal struggle, I know that if I had allowed that to continue, I would have surely ended up back in sexual sin mm. at some point. You know, that's where that whole yeah. line of thinking was going to take me. But instead, you know, I had to really confront those lies that I was entertaining, you know, you know, kind of challenge myself a little bit, you know, and I, like maybe I saw a guy that was good looking and, you know, could have a, this fantasy about a relationship with yep. him or something. And I'd be like, but I'd talk to myself, you know, like, okay, he's good looking. You, you get in a relationship. Let's say that happens. Now what? Because now you're way outside 
the boundaries of anything that God can bless. And oh, yeah. So, so now you're living a life with the blessing of God completely lifted off of it, and you're, you're just kind of doing your own thing. So you've opened the door wide open for the enemy to come in and do whatever he wants to do with his destructive intentions in your life. You know, God's blessing is gone. His protection mm. is gone. You know, and I'm sitting there like, okay, so what are you going to do? You're going to get at some kind of meaningless kind of dead-end job just to make enough money so you can, you know, shack right. up with this guy, you know, and what are you going to tell your family? How are you going to explain? You know, there's just all those dimensions that you, I started to like make myself confront the truth and the, the reality, reality of right. what would happen if I got what I think I want, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, you quickly come to the place, at least I did, where you realize that God's not withholding anything good from me at all. He's protecting me from all that destruction, all that mm. misery. And he's really, God's the one who's offering me a life with meaning and purpose and heavenly reward and eternal joy and rest yeah. <laughs> attached to it, you know? So, and I just got to the place where, yeah, I'm not willing to forsake all that God is offering me to have what mm. I think my flesh wants mm. in a moment like that. Yeah, I like that idea of really talking yourself through it with the voice of truth, you know? Right. And and using what you know about the path of sin to just like confront yourself with with the truth because there is this last situation I think you could speak to there's definitely some truth that needs to be spoken because I can really relate to this. That's actually why I wrote this question. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you like you've got a person who's got a fairly sensitive conscience and uh, maybe a little bit of a gloomy outlook on life, which I can definitely have. <laughs> but like, so they're doing all the right things. They're putting the boundaries into place and they are trying to abstain from the influences of the world and they are trying to seek after the Lord. And they hear this idea that, well, sinful tendencies can just stay dormant in our life for years, waiting for the right opportunity. And they just go, well, then what? Like, what confidence can I have that I'm actually making any progress? Maybe it's just a lack of opportunity, and I'll put all this effort into it, and then in five years, I'm just going to totally go back to what I did or where I came from. Like, What kind of truth mm-hmm. would, you, would you bring into that situation so that they can know their efforts at trying to be pure are not futile? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a really good and I may add a very uh, kind of tough question, Nate, and feel free to, to add to, to whatever I have to say here. But, you know, the, the issue to me is that we're so prone to fooling ourselves and giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Right. And we've, most of us have a pretty long history of even doing that. But to me, that's exactly why God has given us the church. Uh, mm. When we're plugged into a, a healthy mm. church, and you know, notice I said healthy, not right. perfect. Okay, but yep. but there are healthy churches and a place where the body of Christ is evident. People are seeking the Lord, uh, seeking to understand and really obey and come into alignment with His Word. Genuine fellowship is occurring in that setting. Spiritual authority and accountability is being practiced in the church. You know, that makes it a lot harder to get into that kind of delusion for an mm. individual. When and they're in a setting like that consistently. And if we somehow did get into delusion, we should have someone close enough to us then, someone who loves us enough to actually confront us, to, to hold us accountable for repenting and getting back on track when we get off. Um, so 
we really need to make sure individually that we're being genuine and sincere in our efforts to live for the Lord. You know, we really are aiming at the center, so to speak, in mm. our obedience and following Jesus and being humble and being held accountable by others in the body of Christ. And so one of the things that came to mind when I saw that question coming up here was, you know, the Beatitudes come to mind, Nate. Keep praying through those heart attitudes because mm. those will help keep us in these situations. When when we're sincerely coming to the Lord, Lord, make me poor in spirit. You know, mm. am I really increasingly poor in spirit? Mm. Is there any uh, visual uh, change going on in that direction? Am I sensitive enough to continually mourn over sin? Mm. Uh, and what about meekness? You know, that voluntarily coming down and coming under the will of someone else, of mm. God, and those he's placed in authority over me. You know, do, do I have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, really? Like, those are some areas that we can do some self-examination and even some prayer. You know, Lord, mm. please help me get into the, the flow of these Beatitudes. And and I think the fruits of the Spirit work the same way. You know, the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you know, praying through on those things and, and looking for the overall pattern, you know, is there some visible evidence of those things in my life or am I really still just mostly up there in the works of the flesh that Paul lists mm-hmm. right above that mm-hmm. passage in Galatians 5? So I guess bottom line what I'm saying is you know, just like every year, most of us go get some sort of uh, annual health checkup. You know, right. we get our physical exam, and so the older you get, more frequently you have to do that sort of thing. <laughs> typically, you know, that's probably a good lesson spiritually. You know, mm. that because we tend to, I don't know, uh, drift a little mm. bit the longer we've been at something. You know, mm. but what I'm saying is we need to do a spiritual checkup in ourselves, and at least once a year. You know. Always ask ourselves at some point throughout the year, you know, am I in hidden sin? Is there something I'm hiding that I haven't brought to the light, haven't confessed that somebody close to me in authority over me, with me, my spouse, if I'm married, is there something that they're not aware of that I need to bring to the light? You know, that's a, that's a great place to start that checkup. But just as important, you know, I ask myself, like, do I love Jesus? Do I do I love Jesus? Do I look forward to time with Jesus in having a relationship with him? Mm. You know, like, you know, a married person w- would understand or even anyone who wants to be married, like, you know, that person is special in your life and you don't just like keep them on the sidelines and, mm. and marginalize. Mm. You really are investing time and, and commitment into that relationship. And so, you know, am I doing that with Jesus or is my love kind of just growing cold over the last number of months? And and asking ourselves those kinds of questions can help. I think in the end, the way I sort of look at it, Nate, is that God's not impotent though either. You know, he is willing to keep those who want to be kept. So it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about being sincere. You know, when I'm coming to the Lord and I'm sincere, you know, his love will cover a multitude of sins in that setting, but he'll lead me to repentance and you know, help build my faith and turn me away from all of that stuff more and more and put my faith in his faithfulness rather than my efforts. Yeah. <laughs> it's really in him, in his keeping power. You know, Jesus is a good shepherd and he doesn't lose his sheep. Yeah, yeah. That's good. I, As I'm listening to you, reflecting back on all those answers, the common denominator to me seems to be that 
if we only are focusing on the outward sins, mm. then it's just a matter of time before that sin's going to get the upper hand. But if we're yeah. seeking after Jesus right. and wanting to grow in purity of heart, and not just like, I want to grow in purity of heart in this little aspect of my life, but if we're willing to say, okay, this whole range Correct. of heart attitudes, I want to grow in humility, I want to grow in dependence, I want to grow in love, I want to grow in sincerity, then over time the Lord will purge us of the, um, the lust for sexual sin as well. That's right. And we'll just find that in our past. Yes, that's, I completely agree. That's good. Yeah, all right. Okay, so thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. It's great to be here. All right. One of the things that is consistently amazing to us is the fact that over 95% of the men who end up on our residential program came from Christian homes. That means that the scenario we've been talking about this entire show is not something that happens infrequently, but is really common. So I asked three of our staff members to come in and talk about why external things were never enough to protect their hearts from the temptation to sin. Again, here's a short clip, and the rest is available wherever you get your podcasts or at purelifeministries.org slash podcast. Just look for the bonus content for episode number 494. So let's get into this last part as we're talking about changing what finally changed for us in the program. Let's let's get into how we know now that we are finally free. And I'll relate it to something that just happened recently. My son plays baseball. Uh, we're a baseball family. Mm-hmm. And so they just got through tournament play and in the first game of the tournament. We were the number one seed. We were undefeated throughout the season. So we were playing mm-hmm. the least seed, the last seed. They hadn't won a game all year. Mm-hmm. So on paper, we were supposed to win. We were expected to win. And all that pressure was on our team. Like mm-hmm. We couldn't lose to this team. Yeah, we trounced sure. them in the regular season. They can't beat us. So we played with the mentality of not to lose. The other team came in. They were playing to win. They were playing loose, having fun. Mm-hmm. And in the second inning, out of six, they were beating us seven to two. We had dug ourselves a deep hole because we were like, we got to be perfect in this. So we made mistake after mistake after mistake. We dug ourselves a hole. Sure. And it wasn't until we finally flipped and said, okay, we just need to play to win. We just need to go out there and have fun. We did that. We turned it, like I said, and we, we ended up winning the game. It was, it was awesome. It was really cool. So how, how that relates to, to me, how I know I'm finally free, you know, we started out talking about those boundaries. Mm-hmm. And in setting up those boundaries – me is the role as a Christian man, the image. I was playing life not to lose. Sure. I had to maintain this image. So I was like trying to be perfect and everything. Mm-hmm. and had to keep everything in line, but I was digging hole after hole after hole and falling all of the time. But what happened for me here was when the Lord changed me, I started in essence playing to win and the boundaries that I have now in my life, I actually want. Mm-hmm. Whereas before yeah. I was like, I got to set these boundaries up. But when I kept getting around them, I really showed I despised them because I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't really need these. Sure. But I'm going to set them up anyway. But now I have them in my life because I know they, they please the Lord and I'm actually 
trying to stay within the boundaries of righteousness mm -hmm. that I have in Christ. Yeah. And I love the boundaries now mm -hmm. because that, that old song says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Yeah. Everybody connects with prone to wander. But for me, it's like prone to leave the God I love. That's where we've entered into that real relationship with the God and, and where I stay in those boundaries. I don't want to leave God anymore. Yeah. From what he's done for me, I, I don't want to leave him anymore. So what, yeah. about, what about you? Yeah. Well, something that comes to mind when you're describing that, so much of my life, really like my whole life, prior to being set free at Pure Life, my whole life was consumed with hiding and controlling, minimizing my sin. That was my, my focus in life is how to manage this mm -hmm. darkness that I was living in. Um, so even as a professing Christian, my goal, like I always had to keep a guard up and somehow figure out a way to, to hide my sin. Mm -hmm. So now coming to pure life and now that that being exposed, yes, you have to start with repentance. It has to start with confession. It has to start with taking ownership of the fact that, no, you're not really walking like a true believer should. You know, that's this is hypocrisy. You need to get your life in order. Mm -hmm. And that kind of demolishing of this whole house of, you know, built on sand needs to come down. That is part of the process. But then we can kind of carry on that same mindset going forward into our now a real surrendered Christian life, and I'm like, okay, so now I'm going to follow Jesus, and my goal is not to sin, because that's how I know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's mm -hmm. just because that's how I've always fought, and that's but yeah. that's not biblical Christianity. Right. Um, even Jesus himself said, and I think it's John 13, 35, where he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for others. He didn't give a list of... By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. Those who don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And as long as you can keep yourself from all of this, then you're my disciple. He says, no, mm -hmm. it's your love for others. Mm -hmm. That is what defines you as a disciple. And that's what had to switch for me is, like you're saying, I'm no longer living my life with the focus of don't sin, don't mm -hmm. sin, right. you know, don't fall guarded, protected, but no, pursue righteousness right. with yeah. all of your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others <laughs> as right. if their needs were your needs. Right. Like, if that is your drive in life, and it really truly is, then the Lord's going to give you the strength and the grace to do that. Are you going to have your stumbles? And are you going to have your falls? Yes, that will happen, but that's not your drive in life isn't sin. Right. Your drive in life is to pursue the Lord. Right. And so you're no longer focused on, okay, you know, when was the last time I sinned? And let me make sure I don't sin anymore. And, right. you know, let me cover this and hide that. And yeah. your, your whole focus in life has to change. Right. Yeah. It's like when you're driving, you go one way, you're automatically going the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, just automatically. So right. we go after God, we're automatically yeah. going away. Now, obviously, yeah. Now, it, it sounds good. And, and obviously, like, okay, but if you're, that easy? If, if you're pursuing the Lord and still stuck in sexual sin, then you, you have to dig deeper. You didn't actually repent. You know, this doesn't mm -hmm. mean like, okay, well, that's what I'm doing now. I'm still just loving the Lord. I just got this problem with sexual sin. No, mm -hmm. that's, that's not the truth. Right. You know, you, have to, mm -hmm. you still have to, you know, repent of that and, and deal with that. But your focus, once you have really, truly surrendered and repented, your focus now is pursue the Lord, love others, love the Lord, Pursue righteousness, 2 Timothy 6. 
Mm-hmm. Flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness. Like that's that is now your drive in life. Mm-hmm. And what can I do the most for the Lord? How could I surrender my life more for God? You know, and that's how I knew things changed because I never really followed through with any of those commitments in my life prior. I knew that was probably the right thing to do, and but when I started making actual life decisions that backed up what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is real now. I'm actually changing my life to follow the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just doing mercy studies last night, and uh, one of the things I I was looking up was the Hebrew word for love, ahava, and it's a noun and a verb. And in Hebrew, love is very specific, and it denotes that you love God and you will love others. Mm-hmm. And being a noun, it means that love has substance. Mm-hmm. It's real. It, it is tangible. And that on the other side, it also denotes action. So yeah. it's the motivation of your heart, as you were talking about, what keeps us from sin now. It's the love of the Lord, you know, mm-hmm. you know the Shema. Love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then what do we do? We love others, the first and second commandment. Right, that's what we do, and I yeah. I know that one of the transforming issues that happened for me was basically I have been a lawbreaker most of my life. Yeah, in reality, legally a lawbreaker, and so I always viewed restrictions as bad things. So uh, even as a Christian, yeah. a pseudo Christian, I viewed legalism, law, something that I didn't have to follow. But in James, it says, you know, following the perfect law, the law of liberty. And when I started reading that, I'm going, law can be liberating? And I saw that in my life, if I would surrender and trust, there was no trust in me for God before I came here. If I would trust God, yeah, his perfect law, the law of liberty, would sustain me. And as I started to surrender, my love for him grew. I never really loved him before. I loved me. Like you were talking about, it's all about me. But I started to love him. And one of the verses that Pastor Ed talked about once in a sermon about his life verses has literally crushed me over and over again. That's Job 16, 14. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He breaks me. And I needed breaking. And so as he just started removing all the garbage piece by piece, and it was painful, wasn't easy, but as he started breaking me and as I started letting him break me and I stopped resisting him, my desires changed. It, it wasn't the world I wanted anymore. It was the comfort of knowing that I was accepted by God. It was the comfort of knowing that he loved me even though I thought I was unlovable, and I wanted that. Yeah. And so, yeah, now pursuing that through the Lord, through surrender, Man, I've just come to love him so much more. Yeah. I mean, he gives me life. Yeah. Well, his his grace and mercy is yeah. just it's just amazing. Yeah. And when I finally when I finally saw the cross in its reality that it, for me in myself, not just a Christian cliche growing up in the church when the cross and what that all represented you know, for me, what he did for me, man, yeah, that changed my perspective. That changed the course of my life forever. And you were you were talking about the heart. And I'll just wrap up with this. Um, 
I was reading the other day in Psalm 119, that, that amazing Psalm in verse 32, David said, I shall run the way of your commandments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the boundaries that we set up, those were my commandments. Those are the things that I wanted to do that I felt like, you know, this is going to, this is going to help, but I wasn't going after God's commandments. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was not running that way. He says, I shall run the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. Yeah. I just, I love that because when we go after him, he enlarges our heart to receive more of him and then to give that out to others. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you guys for the discussion today. And thank you. It was a blessing. Well, it's good to be here. too. Thanks, Good Josh. to be here. Hey, before we close, we've been noticing our audience numbers going up pretty significantly over the last six months. And for some of you, maybe Purity for Life is the only connection that you've had to Pure Life Ministries. And if that's you, we want to let you know that our mission is to help Christians struggling with sexual sin come into a life of freedom through the victory of Jesus Christ. And Purity for Life is only one of the resources that we use to help us accomplish that mission. Our main resources are actually our counseling programs. First, we have a nine-month residential program for men in sexual sin. Yep, you heard me right. Nine months. Our capacity is 75 men, and currently we have open slots available. We also offer phone counseling for men and struggling women, and hurting wives. You should also know about our programs that we only use biblical counseling because we believe that the Word of God has everything that we need for life and godliness and that it is sufficient for correction, for rebuke, for instruction, for instruction, and for training in righteousness. You can find out more about why we use biblical counseling and about all of our programs at purelifeministries.org. And while you're on our website, be sure to check out our huge library of articles, sermons, and teaching videos. Again, our website is purelifeministries.org. That's all for this week, and we'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.